to Classical Stuff You Should Know. My name is Thomas Magby. I am normally joined by A.J. Hannenberg and Graham Donaldson, but unfortunately due to COVID-19, we are still not able to meet together in person. So it will be just me today. I will be continuing on with Dante's Purgatory. I'd recommend you listen to the last episode, which is on the gates of Purgatory, before diving into this one. In addition, if you want more information, episode 123 is the first episode where we start talking about Dante's Purgatory. So before I dive into the book itself, I need to start with a confession. I love bad movies. I enjoy them so much that I spent three years as the faculty sponsor of Veritas Academy's Bad Movie Club, which AJ both founded and now runs again. From my three years with the club, I saw that bad movies tended to fall into uh, one of two categories. The first category is the multi-million dollar production that ends up as a disappointment. Think The Rise of Skywalker or the short-lived reboot of Spider-Man called The Amazing Spider-Man or The Godfather 3. Another sort of bad movie is the low-budget movie that just didn't have the money or skill to accomplish what the director envisioned. The best example of this, in my mind, is Plan 9 from Outer Space, but anything by Ed Wood would fit into this category. If the big-budget failures are disappointments, the low-budget versions are fascinating for their earnestness. So while there are many reasons for movie failures, there's often a proud director at the center who insists on doing things his way. And sometimes this intense drive and focus works. See Francis Ford Coppola's work on Apocalypse Now. And sometimes that intense drive leads to a towering failure. See every film that Coppola has done after Apocalypse Now. Bad movies are fascinating both for the product itself a movie with ham-fisted acting, bad effects, an inane script. But they're also fascinating as memorials, a memorial that they create to arrogant directors and studios. Bad movies are warnings to those who come after to avoid our mistakes. In this section of Purgatory, Dante will pass through the circle of pride and be presented with monuments encouraging him to humility and warning him of hubris. As you'll remember from the last episode, Dante had just passed the gates of Purgatory and started to climb Mount Purgatory. In case you're keeping track at home, we are one-third of the way through a book called Purgatory, and Dante is just now reaching the actual mountain. As he approaches the mountain, Dante sees a beautiful marble statue, so well carved that not alone would the great Polycletus there feel scorned, but nature too. This statue is of Gabriel appearing to Mary to announce that through her would be brought to earth the peace for which men wept so many years, which freed the gates of heaven. The scene also shows Mary assenting, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Next is a sculpture of the Ark of the Covenant, moving, uh, being moved by the Israelites and King David dancing in front of it, and he is at once appearing more and less than king. Uh, and finally, there Dante sees a statue commemorating the Roman emperor Trajan, who as the story tells us, is being celebrated specifically for helping a poor old woman in the middle of a military campaign. He's willing to listen to, take care of the concerns of this poor woman um, while there's a much larger military campaign going on. Before introducing us to the penitents, Dante, the author, attempts to comfort us by saying, Reader, I want you not to lose the power 
of your good resolution and intent, hearing how God demands we pay the debt. Don't dwell upon the form of punishment, but on, but on what follows. Think that at the worst, it cannot last beyond the day of doom. So what is this punishment for the proud? They are weighed down by large stones on their back, forcing them to stare down and bend uh, toward the ground. They are only able to look directly at the ground in front of them. We will later learn that these souls are staring at 13 examples from Christian and ancient history that are engraved in the road in front of them. They are greeted with three positive examples as they enter, the statues that I just mentioned, and then 13 negative examples as they progress. These penitents are atoning for pride. And while they stood tall in life for all to see them, now they are bowed low and can only see the ground directly in front of them. With pride in particular, I wonder if the prescribed punishment is artificial or simply a revelation of what had been true all along. Whenever I try to make myself seem important, I show how small I really am, that I need some kind of validation or approval. Think of the person who name drops. Instead of making the person seem more important, it makes them seem petty. Why do I care if you bumped into Val Kilmer in an airport or shared an elevator ride with Meryl Streep? And yes, you should make fun of me for those being the first two actors that came to mind. An attribute of sin that um, an attribute of sin is that it makes us self-serving. An ancient understanding of this attribute calls it the curved inwardness of sin. And since I am still very prideful, I will tell you that the Latin phrase for this is incurvatus in se. And I'll have you know that I wrote that Latin phrase with a fountain pen in a tasteful royal blue before typing it up in Scrivener. And I'm telling you that I'm typing in Scrivener to prove that I'm not actually using Microsoft Word because I'm a very impressive person. And did I mention that I was listening to jazz while moralizing via fountain pen? Anyway, the curved inwardness is not unique to pride, but it is on full display here. Those who are bent in on themselves in life now atone for their sins by bending in on themselves, thanks to the large stones on their back. Martin Luther expounded powerfully on this aspect of sin in his commentary on Romans, and while Dante wouldn't have heard these specific sermons. They were produced 200 years after Dante's death. The ideas would have been familiar to Dante. This is a quote from Luther's commentary on Romans. If we but pay attention, it is easy to see the perversity of our will in relation to the body, how we love what is bad for us and avoid what is good for us. It is easy, I say, to sense how we seek and love ourselves in all this, how we are bent in and curved in upon ourselves. If not in what we do, then at least in what we are disposed to do. If this relates to all sin, then why does Dante show the curve so clearly here? By literally bowing the penitents. St. Augustine tells us in the City of God, And what is the origin of our, of our evil will but pride? For pride is the beginning of sin. Pride must be dealt with first before other sins can be addressed. If my desires are still at the center of my world, then I won't be able to move forward in my improvement. Even if I have success in life, that fruit of success is poisoned by the root, by the motivation I have. No amount of improvement will be enough, and I will need an endless, an endless amount of recognition or approval if my initial motivation for action is my pride. We call someone a child if they think the world revolves around them, 
And while an unconsidered self-centeredness might be cute or forgivable in an actual child, it is an embarrassment in an adult. Dante moves further into the Ring of Pride, where he hears the penitents praying an adapted form of the Lord's Prayer. One of their lines cements that this book is written to future readers. It's written for us. And it's not solely a theological treatise on the organization of purgatory. The quote is, Dear Lord, we do not make this final prayer for ourselves here, for here there is no need, but for the ones behind us yet to come. Further on, Dante meets an artist named Odorisi, whom Dante recognizes. Odorisi talks about how short-lived fame is and discusses how successive artists in his field have outshone his ability. He, Odorisi, eventually reflects, O empty glorying in human power, how short a day the crown remains in leaf if it's not followed by a duller age. Your fame is like the color of the grass. It comes, it goes, and it turns brown and dry in the same sun that made its, seed, its seedlings green. Beyond this, Dante sees the 13 stories engraved in the ground in front of the penitents, the 13 negative examples I mentioned before, that serve as a warning as to what these penitents are turning away from by repenting of pride. And I'm not going to list or go through all 13, but just by way of example, uh, a few of these 13 are uh, Lucifer, uh, Arachne, and Nimrod. Dante is then visited by an angel who offers these challenging words. O human race born to fly up to heaven, why at a breeze so little must you fall? In high school, I was taught the seven deadly sins with the acronym POSLEG, POSLEG spelled P-A-W-S-L-E-G, P for pride, A for avarice, W for wrath, S for sloth, L for lust, E for envy, and G for gluttony. And I just think of all of the things that I have forgotten since high school so that the fake word posleg could be there to bounce around in my brain. For what it's worth, it feels weird to call them deadly sins since I don't know what a lively sin is. So you'll probably hear me say capital sin more often here on out. But these seven sins are called deadly or capital or very, very bad or whatever because they are the groupings out of which all other sins flow. Thought of differently and maybe more accurately, these seven aren't sins so much as what ties together a larger group of sins. This will make more sense with an example. I've elsewhere referenced that Dante has been called Aquinas in verse, and Aquinas's chief work is the Summa. Uh, and in the Summa, Aquinas describes how each capital sin has what he calls children. This is a quote, the vices which by their very nature are such as to be directed to the end of a certain capital vice are called its children. There are certain actions that can only be properly said to be born of one of the seven capital sins. So, and just so I say it, there are many uh, group, such groupings of sin. So Aquinas is not the final authority on this, but I think it's helpful to see how ancient authors viewed actions that we might take for granted today. And in case it matters to anyone, Aquinas technically separates vainglory from pride and actually calls vainglory the capital sin instead of pride. Nonetheless, he says pride is the cause of vainglory, and the difference between the two is that pride covets excellence inordinately, while vainglory covets the outward show of excellence. So this is a small clarification, but I know it matters to some listeners, which further proves that we have the best listeners. I believe this entire paragraph is just a classical version of don't at me. So anyway, what are the children of vainglory or pride? 
I will list them and then briefly describe them since I do need to end this podcast at some point. So if vainglory is wanting to appear excellent, then that can be accomplished by words, which is called boasting, or by actions, which is hypocrisy. It's acting in a certain way to appear excellent without actually being excellent. In addition, we can try to show off superiority in four ways. Uh, one is by lifting up our intellect and being too attached to uh, an opinion, which would be called obstinacy. We can place our will above others and refuse to agree or live in harmony with others, which is discord. We can choose to show off our superiority by speech and by argument, which is contention. Or we can place our deeds above others, which is disobedience, where we think we know what we should do better than um, what our superiors think that we should do. This is disobedience. So these are at least a starting place of examination um, for looking at things that might need to change within us. So anyway, back to Dante. After spending time in the circle of the proud, he is visited by an angel who brings him to the end of this area. There Dante hears a phrase sung repeatedly, blessed are the poor in spirit. The suffering in purgatory and in our own lives isn't for the sake of suffering, it is to prepare us to receive a blessing. Dante and Virgil continue their climb, and Dante begins to find the climb easier than before. Virgil reveals that the first mark on Dante's forehead has been erased. If you remember from the previous episode, Dante had seven marks of the letter P on his forehead, which stood for the, the Italian word peccati, which means sin. Anyway, so the first of those P's had um, been erased from Dante's forehead. Um, and then Virgil gives this encouragement to Dante, which I think is also encouragement for us. Your feet will be so conquered by goodwill, not only will they feel no strain, they'll take delight in being urged on up the hill. All right, that is it for the first circle of purgatory. Um, you can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff, which is spelled C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. You can also email us by going to the guys or emailing us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. I think that is it that I have for today. So I hope everyone's doing well, and I look forward to getting another episode up soon. 